In my junior year at Northland, I was given my class schedule. I went back to my room. One of the upperclassmen, the only other seed, there were two seniors in my room at that time, looked at my class schedule and pointed at one particular class and said, Good luck. That's what you want to hear, right? Senior telling you, Good luck. The class he was pointing to was a class called Apologetics. It was known campus-wide as being one of the most difficult classes you could take at the school. It was a required class for anybody on the pastoral track as I was. But I remember after the first lecture, I was hooked on the concept of apologetics. Apologetics comes uh, for the Christian comes from 1 Peter 3.15. With the Christian, we as Christians are challenged to be ready to give a defense or a reason or an explanation of our hope. Of course, Peter's referring to there of our reason for hope in Christ. And after that first lecture, I became or I fell in love with the idea of defending the Christian faith. In fact, up in my office, I have four volumes, uh, a four-volume set that is solely dedicated to the apologetics of creation in Genesis. I have books that are sold for the sole purpose of defending the reason why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. I have books up there that are all about defending Christianity from alternative philosophies. I have books upon books in my shelves and on my Kindle. I have always loved this subject, the idea of defending Christianity from every single angle. Something, though, in the last couple of years has become very trendy. You may have heard this term, deconstructing. There are a couple of very famous podcasters who have made it very public about the fact that they were brought up in a church much like this one and families that much like yours, and then got very famous and got to the point where they decided they were going to deconstruct their faith. The idea being they were going to take apart and they were going to remove out of their lives those things they had been taught in those churches And in their family, as far as Christian ideas, Christian philosophy, Christian worldview, they were going to tear it all down. And since they made their very public announcement, they were deconstructing their faith. Other well-known Christian figures have come out saying the same thing. For example, Joshua Harris, who wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye has announced that he is deconstructing his faith. Several lead singers of bands you'd probably recognize from the 80s and 90s have come out and said, I'm deconstructing my faith. And typically, typically, the reasons they give are because of questions they felt could not be answered or pain that they have experienced Now, this is where the art of apologetics comes in, responding to these objections, responding, giving answers to those who look at our faith and scorn. 
In our next section, Psalm 119, the writer is asking or says he needs an answer, an answer for those who are uh, acting uh, or reproaches him, according to verse 42. He needs a defense. I remember years ago, I bought a car, one of those $1,500 beaters. And of course, I bought that car because my other $1,500 beater had broken down and was not going to be fixed. So I, to save a little bit of money, I transferred a plate from the old beater to the new beater. Well, what I didn't know was that the Secretary of State office, when I did that, and they gave me the little sticker to put on my license plate, they renewed the wrong license plate. So I put my sticker on. I was driving one day. The police pulled me over, did the whole bullhorn, and asked me to get, put my hands in the air and get out of the car. Made me walk backwards towards them. And they began to ask me why I had stolen my car. See, when they ran the plate, when I went by, they said that plate did not match that car. And so for the next 45 minutes on the side of a busy road, I had to give a defense. I had to explain to them what had happened. I had to give them paperwork. They asked me where the original owner was of this car. Where did I buy this car? How, how much did you pay for this car? He, he, they asked me all sorts of information. 45 minutes on the side of a highway with a buddy who was sitting in the passenger seat thinking we were going to spend the night in jail. Now, our text this morning is really not apologetics per se. But what it really is are the foundations of apologetics. This guy's going to, the, the writer here, the verses we have, really is the starting point. For apologetics. It's really the starting point. If you want to think about it this way, if you know somebody who is struggling, somebody who's struggling with doubt, maybe somebody who's even pronounced that they are deconstructing their faith, this is the, the three points I have for you are the three most basic starting points when it comes to apologetics. So let me give those to you. So three points, the basic foundations of all apologetics are built on these three ideas. Number one, Christianity is built on promise. Christianity is built on promise. Psalmist cries out to God in verse 41, Let your mercy, or some of you might have in your Bible, let your steadfast love, same idea there. He says, I want your salvation, but according to what? To thy word, or to, actually, some again, some of you might have in a translation, uh, to the idea of your promise. Now, in order to have a promise or to claim a promise, a promise must be communicated. My kids will remind me when I make a promise. They will plead with me on the basis of promise. Dad, you promised. Dad, you remember two weeks ago at 3 o'clock when we were talking and you promised you'd play this game two weeks later? Now, where do we find our promise? Well, the writer tells us here, in God's word. Now, there's all sorts of promises in the Bible God had made. We actually have lots of examples of God making specific promises to individuals. And then we get to read along as we watch God fulfill those promises. For example, Sarah and Abraham. As I, told, I talked about on Wednesday night, the Bible describes Abraham not only as old, but with two feet in the grave. And he gets the promise for a child. 
And then we get to watch as Abraham does everything possible to mess up that promise. But yet God goes through and he keeps that promise. Now one of the big reasons we struggle with promise is that sometimes we are either not considering the God who made the promise or the promise itself. We see this with the Old Testament saints. For example, their ideas about God were often mixed and tainted by the beliefs of nations around them. They would look for God to act in a certain way as they imagined him to be. If you read the book of Ezekiel, for example... You have a whole group of Hebrews or Jews who are at the, uh, sitting by a river in Babylon. They've been warned over and over and over again that they were going to be taken into captivity if they sinned. And here they are actually captive in a foreign land. And some of them thought to themselves, no, God will be back to get us any time. They were confused. They were thinking about God in a way he never, he never told them. He was going to be. They, they didn't consider his character. They didn't talk about his word. They didn't consider his promise. They got, if you want to put it this way, they, they confused the God in their head for the God of the Bible. They confused the God who made these promises with different promises. But the reality is that Christianity, our faith, is built on God's promises. The ones he and his character have given to us, his people. Now, Will you be interesting to you, as a wife to me, that the number one given, the number one reason that people give for deconstructing their faith, meaning they move from Christianity out of Christianity, you know what the number one reason was? Suffering. Either they faced it, or somebody around them faced it. In fact, years ago, Barna did a survey that said over 70% of self-acclaimed atheists admit, they admit, they did not come to their position by reason or logic, but because they had a negative experience. That's interesting to me. But it makes sense as we move along. We live in a world that says... The negative experiences are to be avoided at all costs. The negative experiences mean there's something wrong with you, something wrong with your belief system. Whereas the Bible says something very different. In fact, one of the images the Bible uses quite often to understand the idea of suffering is that of a woman in labor. Now, in the time of scriptures, let's remind ourselves, ladies, there were no drugs for pain relief, no comfortable hospital rooms. You sat on the ground, you bit a stick, and there were people in the corner praying you wouldn't die. That's the picture of suffering in Scripture. But that's not where the picture ends, right? But, but, but childbirth, is specifically in that time, was an immense negative experience. But what was the result? Joy. And that's the way the Bible describes suffering. Yes, it might be for a time, but always results for the believer, for those who love God, a type of joy. As I mentioned this past Wednesday, we looked at Abraham. Abraham was given a promise that he would be the father of a great people. All the earth was going to be blessed by his offspring. And like I said, he was old, not just old, described as dead. Sarah's womb is described as shriveled up or dried. They have no kids. 
There is, in fact, no possible way for that promise to be fulfilled. Now, I would bet there are people in this room who read something like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God. You might see your situation and you think to yourself, there's just no way. No way. This can't be possible. Years ago, I had a lady at our last church who lost her father. He was a godly man. And I remember at one time I was trying to, because she had just was really struggling with having lost her father. So, you know, I, I, I caught her and I stopped her and I said, you know, you, you know, you can be totally confident about where your dad is. And I said to her, you know, that losing your father unexpectedly like you did, you, we, we can remind ourselves that all things work together for good. And she, her, response to, her response to me was, I don't see how any good could come out of this. I want my dad. She was struggling. As you would later, actually about a year later, come and admit she was struggling to believe that that promise was even possible. When we read in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is confronted with these facts, these impossibility with God's promise. And the Bible says he heard it and made in that moment the decision to believe. He heard, he believed, he trusted God, he had faith. And in that moment, the Bible describes Abraham as becoming righteous. And Christianity is built on the same idea, promise. And of course, the first and most important promise is this, that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved from God's wrath towards sinners to come. I want you to think about that for a moment. Yes or no, church, are you a sinner? Do you do things knowing God is displeased with your sin? Yes. Do you have a bodily desire inside of you to sin again? Yes. Now ask yourself the question, how could it be possible that a promise that if you would just believe, not keep ten rules, not have to make ten sacrifices, but if you would just simply believe, you have a promise that if you put your faith in Christ, that when you stand before God at the end of the age, when God judges all men, declares them guilty of their sin, and is ready to pour out of his wrath, you will be removed because of a promise that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved from that wrath. So Christianity, number one, is built on promise. Number two, Christianity is fueled by a meditation on hope. Christianity is fueled... Number two, the second basic idea of apologetics is this. Christianity is fueled by a meditation on hope. Verse 43, he says, Take not your word, for my hope is in your rules. Now, I mentioned 1 Peter 3.15. I want you to understand the context there. The context is Peter's not actually asking the person to defend their, their, the, the good work. The context there is they're doing good works or perhaps feeding the poor or, or taking care of widows and orphans. And Paul, uh, Peter says, be ready to give a defense as to your motivation. 
What is the thing that is driving you to do this good work? Or as Peter describes it, what is it that drives you? Give a reason for the hope, the assumption that Peter makes is the reason you do good works is because you are a people of hope. Psalm 119, same idea here. How can I continue, he says, in my good work if I lose the thing that causes me hope? You see that in verse 43. Do not take away your word because I hope in your rules. Maybe express it this way. Every week, I want to do the good work of preaching the word. I am driven to do this because I have hope in what God's word can do. So if you want to say it this way, I am driven by God's word to preach God's word because of the hope I have in God's word. For for some of you, it might be different. You're driven by God's word, perhaps to do the good work of financial giving. Or perhaps you're driven by God's word to show kindness to the poor. Or perhaps you're driven by God's word to take care of a widow's lawn one day. But you are driven by the word. And the reason you do it is because you have hope in the word. Hope in the promises of the word. But I want you to pay attention here. The the note, the prayer is that God would not take away the reason or the motivation of his hope. The idea there is he's asking God to make sure nothing comes between him and what drives him. That being the word of God, the source of his hope. Nothing come between Let me ask you a question. What kind of things come between? What are the kind of things that get between you and the hope that you find in God's word? Is it falling into open sin? Are there times of discouragement, sickness, times of stress? Maybe think of Jesus' illustration of the seed sower. There in that image we find that God's word is taken and flown off with with the birds. Some of that word is choked out by other plants. Some of it is not accepted because the ground has gotten hard. Things come between us. People, there are common questions that come with people who are deconstructing their faith. Asking themselves, why did my story end up here? Why can't I stop doing this? Why did that professing Christian treat me this way? Why is God so unfair? And they turn them over and over in their mind, and the result is they move themselves further and further from the very source of hope. This pattern is very common, whether it's a person deconstructing or simply just struggling. Let me give you the pattern, how this works. It starts with disappointment. Something happens. Something is not going the way they want. That disappointment then moves to doubt. Wondering, is what I'm believing, what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing, is any of this true? Doubt leads to discomfort and often disillusionment. Meaning they find themselves detached from perhaps the Christian community. And then comes a moment in most of these people's lives where they either come to this decision that none of this is true and they deconstruct or they become desperate for a way back in. Often people who are dealing with disappointment will reach out for answers. As I shared with the class, a lot of times when people look for answers and they're not looking for the Christians around them, they'll get unverified, unqualified, they get 
perhaps answers that don't make any sense. And because those answers aren't the right answers, again, doubt begins to arise. The doubt begins to cause confusion, anxiety, the desire to isolate. From there on, they might become apathetic and disengaged and withdraw because they don't feel like they fit in. They move from disbelief to, 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 to unbelief. And all along the way are little steps to move, remove a little bit more of God's word out of their life. And they find themselves slowly but surely losing hope. This is why I've mentioned to you, church, Many other times, there is a necessity, a call in the church to address those, engage those. Not wait for them to ask, but to actually engage and go to those who might be struggling. I have told you before, and in classes here from this pulpit, when somebody has a loss, a grief, like a death in the family, we need to go beyond the two weeks or the two months of the crisis. The disappointment of loss can linger. And if we don't want to see people end up in a state of hopelessness, we must find a way to bring them back to the source of hope. We might have to do it again and again. We might have to sit down and have the same conversations over and over and over again. But we have to do it. For the the Christian faith is built, it is driven, I should say. It is fueled by the hope we have that we find in the Word. And then number three, the third basic idea The beginning point of apologetics is this. Number three, Christianity is the only source of true freedom. It is the only source of true freedom. Look at verse 45. The writer declares, I will walk in a wide place. Or the idea here in the King James is that of liberty. We sing about liberty. Verse 46, he speaks of being able to speak to the powerful and influential and not find himself ashamed. In verse 47, he finds himself delighted in his faith. In verse 48, he finds his hands lifted in worship. We should remind ourselves of the concept of freedom in Scripture. Several times, in fact, the Bible over and over will use the same illustration. Moses leading the children of of Israel out of Egypt. The Hebrews were slaves. God delivered them, gave them their own land. God freed the Hebrew people. The same picture is used over and over in Scripture to describe our relationship with God. Sin is what is described as enslaving us. We were beholden to it. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with somebody with a major drug addiction. Somebody who really has it bad. Have you ever tried to reason with somebody? You might reason with them and say, you know what, if you don't stop, you're going to lose your job. And if you lose your job, you're going to lose your home. You might try to reason with them, you know what, if you keep doing this, you're going to destroy your health. You might try to reason and say, you know what, if you keep doing this, you're going to break our relationship. Yet, you say all that and you reason with them, and you watch as they lie and they steal and they manipulate and more just to get their drug fix. Well, the Bible uses that same type of description when it comes to sin in our lives. We were enslaved 
to it. By faith in Christ, we find our liberty. You see that here. He says, I'm walking in liberty, this wide place. He is not being pulled in one side or another by sinful desires. He finds himself courageous. He finds himself willing to go and speak to even those with power about what God has done for him. You see in verse 48, he finds himself delighting. He's happy, he's joyful, he's enjoying the things of God. Verse 48, again, he says, I find myself raising my hands, the idea of worship. Everything has changed. He has gone from being like that drug addict, addicted and enslaved to sin, to now being able to speak with courage, to having liberty, to raising his hands in worship, to delighting in his life. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are set free. We are set free from the accusations of the wicked one. We are set free from the label of guilt that hangs over us. We are set free from the fear of God's wrath. Our faith in Christ is our liberation from Egypt. Faith in Christ is our claim to the promises of God. The freedom we have as Christians, hear me now, the freedom we have as Christians goes beyond the freedom we celebrate tomorrow. The freedom we have in Christ is greater and more worthy of worship than anything that we will speak about and think about and talk about tomorrow. In fact, let us remind ourselves of a little history lesson here. When the Declaration of Independence was signed, we have to remind ourselves that up to that moment, everything was tried to retrain, retain a relationship with Britain. Leading up to this declaration, men went across oceans, they met meetings, they had arguments, they wrote letters. Men spent all manner of money to try and repair the relationship. But when it became clear that Britain would not do what they had promised for the colonials, we declared, or the men of that time declared, the legal right to cut off the relationship. The declaration of, the declaration of independence was a declaration of divorce from a spouse who had already abandoned the marriage. But all of that is an earthly thing. The Bible is very clear that kingdoms rise and fall as they do throughout all time. We are very thankful for the liberty we have as Americans, but we hold more tightly the liberty we have in Christ. Do you understand your American passport has restrictions on it? There are places in this world that as an American on your passport, you cannot go. Does this hold the same for missionaries? Because of the authority and the liberty they have in Christ, they can go where earthly governments say this is forbidden. It is our liberty in Christ that calls us and asks us and, and gives us the ability to speak to those with money and power as we go to voting booths, as we write letters or call our representatives. We have the right to speak. Because of our liberty in Christ, not because of what we find in the Declaration of Independence. Our liberty in Christ means that we will go tomorrow, we might set off fireworks, if it's allowed in Maxwell. We're going to eat food, we're going to enjoy ice cream, but because, of our, because that's really because of our liberty in Christ. It is that liberty that deserves and should cause an eruption of worship. We should be a people who are telling others that we are free. 
for all the world around us is enslaved. So these three ideas, the foundations, Christianity is built on promise, the God of the universe has spoken, we have heard, we have believed. Christianity is fueled by a meditation on hope. The further the Christian moves away from that source of hope, God's word, they lose the fuel for the Christian life. It sounds simple, but the great weakness of the American Christianity is because so few Christians are fueled by the hope that comes from God's word. And lastly, Christianity is the only source of actual freedom. It is by faith in Christ that we find true liberty, liberty to speak to power, to delight in the things of God, the liberty to worship is a gift from our Father, the author, as we sang this morning, of liberty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, these basics, Father, of the life lived to walk with you. That we walk, Father, in confidence of promises. We walk, Father, fueled by the, the things that we find in your word. And, Father, we walk in wide places in liberty because of what we have in Christ. We thank you for these truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.